Well, thus far in our study of John's gospel, we've seen six of our Lord's miracles, signs that John recorded to show us who Jesus is. The first took place at a wedding in Cana, turning water into wine. The second in Capernaum, while Jesus was in Cana, healing the nobleman's son from afar. The third took place in Bethesda, healing the lame man. The fourth took place on a hillside north of the Sea of Galilee after a long day of teaching and healing, feeding the 5,000. The fifth took place during the night after the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water. The sixth was initiated by the disciples' question, who sinned, this man or his parents? The miracle was giving sight to the man born blind. Well, today we come to the final and the most spectacular miracle of Jesus' ministry, the resurrection of Lazarus. Because of its importance and the length of the narrative, we're not going to be able to cover this miracle in one message. So today we're simply going to look at the first 16 verses of the 11th chapter and see how this miracle brought glory to God. And I trust, discover that we can also bring glory to God in similar situations. The first thing we're going to discover is that it's possible to bring glory to God through sickness. John 11, 1 through 4. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, this is the first time we meet Lazarus. In fact, John is the only writer to mention Lazarus at all. Now, Luke records Jesus' story of a rich man in Lazarus who died and went to Hades, but that's a different Lazarus. This Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany, and we've already met them. Luke introduced us to them in the 10th chapter of his gospel when Jesus stopped by their home while on a journey, and Martha got upset because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him, instead of helping in the kitchen. After that, Jesus frequently stayed in their home, located in Bethany, a village only two miles from Jerusalem. Now, since there are several Marys mentioned in the Bible, John reminds his readers that this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. He will actually account or recount the event in chapter 12 because it plays an important role in the narrative at that point. Well, unfortunately, some have identified this Mary or Mary Magdalene with the sinful woman that Luke tells us about who anointed Jesus' head and feet with perfume, 
wetted his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, there's really no evidence that that woman was Mary Magdalene. And it's not a reference to this event or this Mary because it took place two years earlier at the home of Simon the Pharisee in Galilee. Confusion, however, continues to plague this event because Matthew and Mark tell of a woman who anointed Jesus' head in the home of Simon the leper two days before the Passover. Now, Jesus did not refer to that woman by name, simply referring to her as the woman and this woman. So it's doubtful it was Mary, a woman he knew so well and and loved. And John does note that this anointing that we're talking about today took place six days before the Passover. Well, the debate will continue as to whether there are one, two, or three anointings and We're not going to resolve it to everyone's satisfaction, so let's just get back to the narrative at hand. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was gravely ill, so much so that Mary and Martha sent a messenger to inform Jesus that his good friend was sick. Now, you may recall that Jesus had left Judea after teaching in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, and was nearly stoned to death while there for saying he was the Son of God. He had therefore gone to Perea across the Jordan, where he would no longer be under the jurisdiction of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was having a successful ministry in the vicinity where John the Baptist had been baptizing just a couple years earlier, when a messenger arrived with the message, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that message no doubt troubles those who've been led to believe that if you're truly loved by Jesus, you'll not get sick. That if you're in a right relationship with Jesus, you'll always be healthy and wealthy. (laughs) Well, this obviously blows a hole in that teaching. Here was a man Jesus loved, a very good friend, a host to Jesus many times, and he was sick. So a personal relationship with Jesus is obviously no guarantee of good health. What Jesus said after receiving the message also has a bearing on our understanding of sickness. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus began by simply confirming that some sicknesses lead to death and some do not, but we already knew that. Sickness is often God's way of preparing the body to release our spirit, so sickness is not always bad, even if it ends in death, at least not for the believer. We also do realize that sickness can be a form of discipline from the Lord. He disciplines those he loves. And sometimes physical discipline in the form of sickness will call our attention to something in our life that needs to be changed. We were reminded of that while discussing the disciples' question about the man born blind. Well, here we learn something new about sickness. Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, 
but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, what does that mean? Well, surely it doesn't mean that God causes sickness just so he can use sickness to be glorified. You know, we know from Scripture that the source of sickness and death is sin. We are responsible for the presence of sickness and death in the world, and we often bring sickness upon ourselves through disobedience. And even when forgiven, God does allow the consequences of sin to touch us, knowing that through them good can come, you know, through sickness can come the opportunity for healing, demonstrating the reality of the hope we have for a day when there will be no sickness or pain or death. And it gives the opportunity to demonstrate the grace God gives us, enabling us to face the trials of life with confidence. So God can be glorified through our sicknesses if we will allow him to use them for his glory. And he was certainly glorified to the sickness of Lazarus. And so was his son in more ways than one. You know, Jesus obviously received admiration, personal glory for raising Lazarus from the end result of his sickness, death. But the raising of Lazarus led to even greater glory for Jesus because it led to his being glorified on the cross. Now, the resurrection of Lazarus pushed Jesus to the cross. It was the final straw that caused the Jews to begin in earnest to plot his death. So glory can indeed come to God through the sicknesses we face. It certainly happened in Lazarus's case. Reading on, we discover that God can also be glorified simply through facing danger. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When, therefore, he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, Jesus' response to the news about Lazarus was certainly unexpected. He stayed in Perea for two more days. Why? We really don't know. One thing for sure, it wasn't because he didn't care. John affirms that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it was not a lack of love that led Jesus to do nothing for two days. But why did he wait? And what took place during those two days? We can, we can only surmise. You know, some have suggested that Jesus waited to make sure it was understood that he doesn't drop everything to respond to a request from a loved one. He made sure his mother realized that her request wasn't the real reason he turned water into wine at Cana. And he told his brothers he wasn't going to Jerusalem with them when they urged him to do so, only to go on his own a couple of days later. You know, this could be another illustration of the fact that he does things 
on his own time when he knows it's best to move, not simply in response to the urgent pleas of those he cares about. Others look more to the circumstances of Lazarus' sickness and what was going to happen for an understanding of why Jesus tarried two days. Some point out that Jesus, or suggest that Jesus was a day's journey from Bethany, and by the time the messenger had gotten there, Lazarus was already dead, and Jesus knew it. But they suggest Jesus wanted Lazarus to be dead four days before he arrived. And there was a Jewish belief that the spirit of the dead hovered around the tomb for four days, seeking to reenter the body, but that it left after four days because decay had set in by then and they no longer recognized it. If, in fact, Lazarus died the day before Jesus got the news about his sickness and Jesus waited two days and then traveled back one day to Bethany, we'd have the four days. But there's really no indication that Lazarus had died before Jesus got the word or how far away he was. All we know for sure is that Jesus waited two days and then told the disciples that they were going back to Judea. Now, they didn't like that. And they reminded Jesus that the Jews there had just tried to stone him. Besides, why go back? Jesus had said Lazarus' sickness wasn't going to end in death, so why risk going back into enemy territory? Well, Jesus answered with what appears to be a proverb of sorts. He said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, what does walking in the daylight and stumbling at night have to do with this situation? Perhaps the key is in the time allotted to daylight. Now, the Romans and the Jews both had 12 hours of daylight. Now, you may think that's impossible, but their hours varied according to the length of the season. But their day was still divided into 12 segments. And in those 12 hours, man did the work that had to be done for the day. If he tried to walk or work at night, he was apt to stumble. But if he did what he was supposed to do during the day, he could see where he was going and could succeed in his mission. Perhaps Jesus is simply saying that God had allotted a set amount of time for him to accomplish his work. As long as it was still day, Jesus could do it without fear of the Jews. God was in control. He had work for Jesus to do, and as long as it was day, nothing should detour them. Now, the night was coming, and things would change then, but for the moment, there was no need to fear anything. They could face danger with confidence that God would see them through the task he had ordained they accomplish. I think the application for us should be obvious. If we're doing what God wants us to do, there's no need to withdraw from danger. He'll see to it that his will is done. 
Now, we may not fully understand or anticipate his will, but we can have confidence that his will will be done in our lives if we've committed ourselves to just doing it. Now, I think we have to be careful and not make some crazy assumptions and, and crazy risks because we know that our work's not done. We don't know when our work is done. But if we're seeking to honor God with what we're doing, and he is in fact working through us, he'll keep us here as long as we need to be here. So there's no need to hide ourselves from, from fear. You know, we can face physical danger. We can accept some challenges. We can take some risks knowing that God will be glorified by our actions if they are within his will and are motivated by a desire to bring glory to him. Jesus was willing to face danger for the glory of God. In fact, he was willing to face death for the glory of God. And so were his disciples. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to him or to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, the disciples took him literally and thought Lazarus was getting better. Even when Jesus said, I go that I may awaken him out of sleep, they, they didn't get the picture. If they thought about it, they should have understood what Jesus was saying. If Lazarus had only been sleeping, he certainly would have awakened before Jesus got there and fallen asleep and awakened another time or two. If it took three or four days to get there. But they assumed Lazarus was getting better. After all, Jesus had said his sickness wasn't unto death, and Jesus hadn't hurried off to do something about it. But Lazarus had died, and Jesus had to spell it out. Lazarus is dead. Now, I imagine that came as quite a shock to them. And the fact that he had died must have shattered Mary and Martha, especially if the messenger had returned with Jesus' words, this sickness is not unto death. You know, we can only imagine what went through their heads if Lazarus had already died. Had Jesus been mistaken? Was he out of control? Did he or did he not have authority over life and death? Surely there were a lot of questions being asked about this death. And Jesus added to them when he said, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe he was powerless to save his friend? No way. Jesus had the power to heal, and the disciples knew it. And they knew he had authority over death. He had already raised Jairus' daughter and the son of the widow of Nain. 
But did they really understand the implications of what Jesus was doing? Apparently not. Jesus wanted to drive a lesson home before his death. So he was glad for their sakes and our sakes that he wasn't there to prevent the death of Lazarus. You know, if he had healed him, it would have just been one more healing. But this demonstration of his power over death would make a difference. He didn't want them to have any doubt about his authority to give life to the dead, the really dead, the four-day dead people. So he said, let us go to him. Now, I love Thomas's response. And this, remember, is doubting Thomas. He's the one who said he wouldn't believe Jesus had risen until he put his hand into Jesus' side and touched the nail prints of his hands. Here's a man who, who wanted proof, but we probably really shouldn't call him doubting Thomas. On this day, he's the one, not Peter, who spoke up and said, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, he's not talking about dying with Lazarus. He's talking about Jesus. He assumed that if Jesus went back to Judea, he'd be killed. And Thomas figured the disciples would be killed as well. But he was willing to do it. He was willing to face death for the glory of God. And this was before the resurrection, before putting his hand in Jesus' side and the wounds in his hand. So Thomas is here expressing, I think, tremendous faith. You know, one commentator said that this wasn't expectant faith, but loyal despair, but I don't think so. Thomas was expressing amazing faith in Jesus. Doubting Thomas was willing to face death itself because of his faith in Jesus. The question we end with today is, are we? Are we willing to face death in a way that brings glory to God? You know, thousands, perhaps millions of believers throughout history have done so. And in numerous places around the world, many are doing so today. Facing death because of their faith in Jesus. Are we prepared to do so here. You know, many believe the evidence is strong that a day may soon come when we will be called upon to face not only sickness and danger in a way that brings glory to God, but death itself. And not just the death all men face, but the death of a martyr. They also believe that we should be preparing ourselves now mentally and collectively, to face such a future. That as a church, we should be making certain that our faith and our relationship to Christ and with each other is strong enough to face whatever might come our way. You know, if we struggle 
to face sickness and danger with confidence and faith today, we're probably not ready to face death in a way that will bring glory to God. We have some challenges. And the way we face sickness today, the way we face risks and dangers, is kind, kind of a picture of how we're prepared to face an ultimate sacrifice for Christ. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by the hard times that come. And we ask, well, why me? Doesn't Jesus love me? Why didn't he heal me quicker? Why didn't he give me what I wanted when I wanted it? I think this account answers some of those questions and raises a challenge for us to rethink the way we handle adversity in life. Because the way we handle adversity today may be a picture of what we'll do tomorrow if and when times really get rough. There are lots of things happening in the world today that, again, make, make believers think hard times can actually come here. They're coming elsewhere. Churches are being burned. Preachers are being murdered. Christians are being killed. Families are being torn apart because of their faith in Christ. Now, this isn't anything new. It's been happening throughout history. But there are those who say we need to open up our eyes a bit and look back to history and see how the church prepared to face that kind of adversity and begin doing the same thing today. So when it comes, we'll be ready. You know, I don't want to be a doomsday prophet. I, I do want to be prepared. And I think it's important that we think through how we respond to adversity, that we answer the questions that come up, that we encourage each other we support each other, that we bond together and realize we're not called upon to face hardship by ourselves. We have a body. And if we work together, we can be ready for whatever might come. That's why Jesus was glad he wasn't there to heal Lazarus. That's why he waited a few days. He wanted us to understand what goes on. And in spite of the fact that we don't understand everything, we understand him enough to trust him and to obey him. The question, of course, is one we ask all the time. Have we really surrendered our all to the lordship of Christ? And are we willing to follow him wherever he leads? Thomas says, we'll go with you. No matter what, are we willing to follow Christ? Are we really his sheep? Do we really acknowledge him as our shepherd? And do we trust him enough to go and do whatever he calls us to do? Again, we sing I Surrender All on a regular basis. It's one of my favorite hymns. The question is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to face adversity and hardship and struggles and dangers with confidence? 
and with a sense of victory because we know who Jesus is. And we know what he's done for us. And we know the future he's prepared for us. Let's stand and let's surrender again.